Good. It's good to see you. That's enough fellowship. That's way too much fellowship. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourselves comfortable. I know some people are still coming in, but we're going to go ahead and get started. My name is Luke, if I have not met you yet. I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy Church, and I'm very excited to teach our passage today. Um, but before we do, typically uh, before our, I guess, passage is taught, we take a look at what we call Central City, which is a middle portion of downtown. It's actually about 19 and change square miles. Uh, we look at the issues that face Central City. We look at the uh, ministries that are working, maybe some news that is coming from that part of town, because it's the part of town we're in right now. Right? We actually find ourselves in this area that we call Central City. It just so happens that this week, the passage that we're going to get to look at falls in line to some degree, or overlaps to some degree, with the Stanford rape case, which has been just big public news. It's been on the front page of any app you use or any paper that you look at, um, where there was a, a rape, a pretty egregious one, on the Stanford campus. And so it got me thinking about Central City as I've been praying. It turns out that one in five young women that go to college, one in five, will be either sexually assaulted or there will be an attempt of sexual assault against a woman. One in five. The numbers are high. I mean, that sounds high. Those are reported, by the way. Those don't include the ones that are not reported, which are a lot. But it's analogous to the ones that happen within an impoverished demographic as well. Sexual assault runs high with poverty, and they are still studying the links between poverty and sexual assault. There's not been a lot of study done on it. There's not been a lot of research or writing done on it. All we know is that the statistics are, are, are pretty high. It just so happens that's the city that we're in. Central City is full of college girls, and it is full of impoverished young women. When I started to study this a little bit more, it turns out that one-third of these women will contemplate suicide. 94% of them have PTSD within two weeks. It's amazing. And there's a 600, 600% increase in the likelihood of them going to cocaine. It's 10 times more likely to go to any other drug other than cocaine. It's a big problem. You're gonna see why I think it overlaps with the passage we are looking at today, but I thought we would start by praying for this. Because listen, Education is not going to fix that, right? Rallies will not fix this problem. That's not going to happen either. I mean, we, pre preaching sermons won't really fix the problem. The gospel itself coming alive in the hearts of the residents of this great city is the only thing that will change any kind of statistic. It's the gospel, right? So we're going to pray about that. I'll explain what I mean as we get into the text. But, Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your goodness to this city. And as we pray for the part of the city that we feel responsible for, we feel responsible for Central City, for over a dozen neighborhoods full of thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have experienced the shame of a sexual assault in their life. Maybe people know about it. Maybe people don't. We pray for their hearts. We pray that the power of the gospel will cleanse them from the guilt and the shame of something that was done to them. We pray for the hearts of those who are aggressors, Lord, that they are looking for something, trying to get something that only the gospel can fix. There's cracks and crevices in all of us. And Father, when it comes to something like that, your gospel, the good news of what you have done for mankind through the person of Jesus is the only thing that will fix 
the only thing that will remedy, and the only thing that will alter a statistic. We love you, Jesus, and we pray for our city. We pray for the women, the young women, the impoverished women in this city. We thank you for the ministries and the churches that have a heavy hand in ministering to that demographic. And Lord, we pray that you would give them grace, that you would finance them, that you would help them be innovative, that you would give them great fruit as they do that work, and that you would teach us as a church how to do the same. We love you, Father, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, turn in your Bible to John 4. John 4 is going to be our passage today. I think it's going to be a helpful passage for us. And while you're turning there, back in 2007, um, the Avett Brothers, it's a band that a lot of you have heard or you listen to, they wrote a song called Shame. I actually own the album that this was on. It just rang in my mind as I was reading this passage. I'm going to read you one lyric and then the chorus out of it, okay? This is how it goes. I know the things I said to you. They were untender and untrue. I'd like to see those things undo. So if you could find it in your heart to give a man a second start, I promise things won't end the same. And then it goes into the chorus. Shame. Boatloads of shame. Day after day, more of the same. Shame. Blame. Please lift it off. Please take it off. Please make it stop. It's pretty penetrating when you think about it, when you just read it like that. It, shame is a lot like lint. The longer you live this thing we call life, the more you accumulate, right? It just kind of sticks all over, and you can pick, and you can brush, but you look around, and you're just full of lint. And that's because we find ourselves to be aggressors and victims. We break things around us, and things are broken in us. We do terrible things to others, and terrible things are done to us. So it does not take time for shame to become just a common fluency with us. And time does eventually wear some of the harsh edges of the stain away, but not all of it, right? I mean, it just kind of remains. Boatloads of it. So today is going to be a helpful passage for all of us, I think, because we meet a new character today, right? We've been meeting new characters every week or every other week, and this one has no name. It's a woman with no name, but she does have boatloads of shame. That we do know. And Jesus meets her, and for all of her maneuvering, all of her contending, he acts incredibly considerate. He's very thoughtful. He's very helpful. He's very loving. And we get to see it all. I mean, this is the beautiful thing about this passage, which ends up being some people's favorite passage in the book of John, right? We get to see it. What happens when Jesus comes, sees, speaks to, and touches the shame of people? what his remedy is for us. And this is a tough topic. We don't like to talk about it. We don't even like to lock eyes with the shame on our life. We don't want to bring it out of the history and dust it off. We don't want it to be exposed. We definitely don't want someone else touching it, and you definitely don't want a pastor speaking to it. That's just the nature of shame. But Jesus Christ is absolutely brilliant in this passage and how he handles it. I'm excited to teach it. So if you look in your Bible, turn to John 4. We're going to look at verse 1. We're not reading the whole chapter, and I will stop occasionally just to teach here and there, just to make some things a little bit more clear. This is the word of the Lord for us. John 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, 
although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Okay, real quickly, we talked about this last week. I'm just going to bring the bullet back up, and that is the fact that John is the only gospel that really mentions that Jesus and John were baptizing at the same time, right? So what was happening is Jesus' crowd was growing. John's was shrinking. This is why you find that penetrating statement, he must increase and I must decrease. That's what's going on. The Pharisees were causing a little bit of an issue. They were using Jesus' success against John because John's a little bit of an embarrassment to them. He's the guy that says, why are you guys even here, you brood of vipers? A little bit of an embarrassment. Jesus is picking up on this. Everyone knows there's a little bit of a thing that's trying to be created, a wedge. Jesus picks up, and he moves on. Let's look at verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon, by the way. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealing with Samaritans. Okay, this passage says so far that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. But logistically, he didn't. Google Maps would have sent him straight through Samaria. Anyone, really, because it's the shortest route between Jerusalem and where he was going, up there in the Galilee area. It's the straightest route. But the Jews of the day chose a roundabout, a scenic route, added a lot of time, added a lot of distance. Why? Because they were racist. They had a, a high level of discrimination in their hearts against Samaria. They saw them as half-breeds, compromisers, and very dirty, unclean people. It was worth the time for them to just go around and avoid the whole thing. If you're new to the Bible and you don't understand why that is the case, I'm going to tell you very quickly why, and it might help you in other passages as well. Samaria, it, as a place, it used to be a city, but it became a region. Samaria is, is an area. In fact, in many parts of the Bible, you will see the word Israel and Samaria used interchangeably. The reason for that is because after King Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was split into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern. Very basic stuff, right? A northern and a southern. The southern was Judea. It's where Jerusalem is. The northern is Israel. Sometimes you'll see Ephraim. Sometimes you'll see Samaria, but it was the northern kingdom. What you need to remember is this. They were both carried off and deported into exile after they were captured by a foreign power. Both of them. In fact, when this happened with Samaria, it happened with the Assyrians. They came, they conquered, and they deported. But they didn't just deport everybody. They took what they considered to be the finest of the people, the wealthiest, the strongest, the upper crust, the most brilliant, the politicians, the upper class, even maybe the upper middle class. And who did they leave? The broken, the diseased, the old, the invalid. They left them. Right? And then what they would do is they would bring in other people from other kingdoms that they had conquered. 
other nations that they had destroyed. And they would import a totally different people to intermarry and to create a new culture. This is a nation's way of cleansing a nation from all of its patriotism and all of its religious backbone. And it works a lot of times. I mean, think about it. If we lost 70% of Knoxville, 70% of the movers and shakers, all the pretty smart people, wealthy people, they're all gone, right? And then they import a bunch of folks from Florida. 70%. Things would start changing after a while. Our football would stink, right? That wouldn't take very long. Our food wouldn't be any good anymore, right? Come on. If you're from Florida, we're glad to have you here at Legacy Church. Thank you for being here. It works. That's why they did it. Because when they imported, conquered people from other places, what did they bring? But they're foreign gods. They're foreign pagan gods. So you would end up with a blend of Judaism plus something else. And it would become something odd, sideways. We still see that in different parts of the world today, don't we? Christianity plus something, some idol, some belief that is really key to that part of the world. We even have it in America, too. I know I'm always kicking the donkey. That is the prosperity theology and the prosperity message in America. I'm doing that on purpose. But is that not an example of what we're talking about right here? Just to kick it one more time. You have a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of the American dream, and quite a bit of Buddhism mixed in. Karma. I will get if I give. If I misbehave, bad things will happen. That's more, that's more Buddhist than it is Christian. Yet there are going to be a lot of pulpits that are preaching it today. And not just wealthy ones, by the way. Mostly impoverished ones. Mostly impoverished pulpits are, are pushing that as hard and as fast as they can. Just to get back to the passage today. The Jews of this day, they regarded Samaritans for this reason as deeply unclean, compromising half-breeds that could not hold on to God tight enough, so they compromised and brought in all other kinds of stuff. In fact, this would be a great divide from there on after with massive effect. Some of you might remember whenever we went through the book of Nehemiah, which was a fun book to go through as a church, but you might remember, or if you've read the book, Nehemiah is building the walls around Jerusalem, sword in one hand, trowel in the other. Who's his biggest problem in that story? Not Assyria, or Babylon, or Egypt. Samaria. Samaritans coming against him. So, traveling through Samaria is a no-no. You didn't do it. The people were unclean. Their food was unclean. Their, their water was unclean. Their wells were unclean. You didn't do business with them. You didn't even have a conversation with them. Unclean. I think the closest thing we have for this today is maybe racial tension that we experience still in the U.S., right? I mean, don't fool yourself. I think we all know that there still is a lot of places in town where the other people live. There's always an across the tracks, no matter what city you live in. I think Knoxville's really no different. I think even we have people that we consider to be across the tracks, Maybe the dirtier people, maybe the more unclean sections of town that we won't drive through, but we will drive around to get where we want to go. I think Knoxville's no different. We are one shooting away from tipping over. One black officer shooting a white teenager, one white officer shooting a black teenager, and then all of a sudden people are lighting Molotov cocktails and talking about how it's those people and it's what they did to us and our people. It's not just a black and white thing either. 
We all, every single heart in this room has a discrimination. Maybe thin, but it is there. A group, a, a people that we look down our nose to see. I know this because it's a gospel break. It's a gospel issue in our hearts. It's not an upbringing thing. It's not an education thing. Something's wrong inside. I remember talking to a homeless guy once in Florida whenever we were working with the homeless there. And after a pretty long conversation, I submitted to him that he might be a racist. Friend, I think you've got discrimination running through you that is pretty hard to miss. What are you talking about, Luke? I do not. I love all different skin colors. I just hate rich people, all of them. You see, everyone has a Samaria. Everyone has a Samaria. You see, discrimination, the reason for it, is it is our hearts saying, I am not satisfied with how God sees me, so I must put down a group of people so that I may be elevated. That's all it is. That's why it requires a gospel remedy for it to be eradicated in our hearts. Not just watching a documentary. Not just learning about it in school. Because if Samaria stays dirty in our minds, that means we stay clean. And that's really easy to do in our hearts because we want to be clean. So here we have Jesus confronting racism and confronting sexism. Now, if the story stopped here, it would be a great story. I could keep preaching on it. We could preach a series on it. It's got some fantastic nuances of how God is going to unclean places to reach unclean people with a clean message. You could go all day. It's an easy softball for any preacher worth his salt. But it doesn't end there. It goes on. It goes on. Noon, the heat of the day, where Jesus is worn out because he's not just 100% God, he's also 100% man, and we wear out. So he camps out right there at the well of Jacob, sends his disciples on to buy some food, and he just kind of encroaches and sits on that well, which is still running today, by the way. This is fantastic. I mean, just to think about this, it's about 80 foot deep, and they built a church around it, but that well that is in this story is still there. You want to hear something crazy? Spring water is still gushing through that thing. The same exact well. Blows my mind. Here he is at noon. Most of the traffic by noon has come and gone. Kind of like Gold's Gym, right? The day is moving. Everyone is in their work day. Their normal has carried on. It is just a dumb time to be carting and trucking water back and forth. You need a good reason to be relocating water in the middle and the heat of the day. A really good reason like shame. Boatloads of shame. Our nameless woman comes, sees Jesus, an obvious Jewish man standing there, very possibly feels a little bit uncomfortable. Put yourself in her shoes. A little uncomfortable, wondering how long is he going to be there? Maybe. Should I go home? Should I come back? God, I'm already all the way out here. Maybe he won't talk to me. You get the feeling that she's used to being alone when she's at the well. Because it's easier that way. People aren't talking. They're not whispering. They're not looking at you sideways. They're not putting fake smiles on. It's just easier to be there at noon. Shame does that to us, doesn't it? We all have a well 
that we will wait till noon to go to. We do something like that when we have a large level of shame in our lives. We understand this. And you might have gotten to this point and stage of this passage and thought, this isn't really connecting with me because I don't feel like I've got a lot of shame. If you're having a hard time refurbishing those old thoughts of things that you have done or have done to you, I want you to imagine the most perverse thought you've ever had in high def right above your head for everyone to see it, to look at it, to judge you, and to say that is who that person is. Maybe the biggest mistake you've ever made. Maybe the most horrendous and tragic thing that has ever happened to you. Maybe that thing you've ever told anyone. Maybe that thing that you've never let come out of your mouth. For everyone to see. If everyone in the room had to struggle with that, we would all go to the well at noon. We would all do what she's doing. I understand it. I think we all know people like this woman, too. Socially, a bit distant. For no other reason than shame. Never in attendance, because people are there. Right? Never joyful, never happy, never smiling, can never breathe deeply, can never be comfortable in your own skin, can never belong to anything because shame and embarrassment and deep sin is rotting them from the inside out. So Jesus sees this in this woman, everything I just described and more. And what does he do? He asks her for something. Please give me water. He says, let me remind you of how unclean that water would have been in this culture. Served by an unclean woman in an unclean vessel in an unclean place. Jesus culturally striking out. Wrong place, wrong time, with the wrong woman asking her to do the wrong thing. Nothing seems to fit. And yet, everything seems to fit. It's not a mistake that this passage is coming right after Jesus' interactions with Nicodemus. Two weeks we spent on Nicodemus and his conversation with Nicodemus, right? So there's some continuity between Nicodemus and this nameless woman, but there's also some deep contrast, is there not? He's educated. He's orthodox. He's elite. He's well-respected. She is not orthodox. She is despised, and the best religion she could come up with is probably some weird folk religion. Two totally different people. The same exact remedy needed by both. They both needed Jesus. God's blessing, his favor, the grace of his gospel will travel as far as the curse is found, regardless of where and what direction it goes. The highest of ivory towers, the lowest of the slums. This morning, right now, as we're preaching, there are university professors there are brilliant politicians, good ones. There are celebrities. There are pastors that need Jesus. And yes, I said pastors. But there are also prostitutes. There are also child molesters. There are human traffickers. There are abusive addicts that they also need Jesus. They need the exact same remedy. So what Jesus shows us here in this passage is he's blasting through all kinds of racism of the day, blasting through all kinds of sexism, blasting through the fear, the pride, the weirdness that the culture would try to put on, and he's bringing a remedy for two hurting people. I think he's doing the same thing today, the very same thing. There's a quote I've been wanting to use for years. I finally get to use it. 
perfect time for it. Sebastian Moore says this, the cross is an unbearable place where all the evil in our shabby selves tries to hold its own against God, and yet all we could do is provoke the thunder of the resurrection. I would tattoo that somewhere on my body, but that's a lot of words, and that would hurt for a really long time and be expensive. <laughs> but I love what he's saying. He's saying for all of our attempts to stiff arm and fight off God's pursuit of us in the midst of our shame, for all of our attempts to push him away, to run away, to try to earn, for all of our attempts to do this, the only thing it provokes is grace, new life. That's what we get. I think this is important for us today because I don't know where God's good news finds you. God's good news of what he has done for you and for me through the person of Jesus Christ, though we deserve the opposite. Totally despite us, he gifts us. Totally beyond us, he embraces us. I don't know where that finds you. Some of you, you might be a little blank or insensitive to this possibly bored, because we've been talking about this for more than seven minutes. Ready to check this off, ready to move on, nothing to see here. That might be where it finds some of you, but I have a feeling that it's finding some of you at a place where you want to believe that this grace is really good, but you can't allow yourself to enjoy it. Because after all, you did that dark thing, or that dark thing was done to you. Luke, I really want to believe this. I really want to believe that God's grace is good for me, regardless of my fumbling it or running away from it. I want to believe that, but I just can't bring myself to do it. It's too good. I don't feel like I deserve it. It's too good. I don't feel like I'm fit for it. The good part of the good news for you and me, the good part, the good part is that Jesus detours to unclean places. He detours to the wells and the... He detours and brings a detouring grace to fall on people that shouldn't get it. The people in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing. That's where grace finds us. Finds us as misbehaving. Finds us in those places of shame, deep remorse. That's where the gospel goes. Let's look in verse 10. i got to move on. Verse 10. In the same passage, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying right there. He's saying the water that I'm offering is different from the water you would give me. We're talking about two different kinds of water. The water I'm opting to give the water that I am proposing is totally different from the water that you are proposing. I think Jesus is doing what Jesus does well. He's painting a picture using the surrounding and using things that are around him right there, which happens to be a well, happens to be spring-fed. He's using a phrase, living water. That's not by mistake. It's a historic term. 
That's something that people would have understood. In fact, the phrase living water reaches all the way back to the Old Testament and all the way forward to the book of Revelation. It's one of those words that you see coming up through both canons across the whole narrative of what God is doing with his people. And what this means is that he's showing us where real life can be found, but he's also showing us, and hear me, how to handle our idols. And that might sound like a jump because no one said anything about an idol so far. But that's what he's doing. Let me explain. Jeremiah 2, one verse. I'm just going to read one verse. In verse 13, my people have committed two evils, God says through the prophet Jeremiah. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Okay, so Jesus is using similar language to talk to a woman about a similar situation. You'll never have to go to idols again, ma'am, with this water. You'll never be thirsty again, ma'am, with the water that I am giving you. You don't have to go back to broken cisterns anymore. You could drop them. You could drop them right there. And once you've tasted of this, you'll never go back to old containers. You see, a cistern is not a well. A cistern is just a container, like a bottle of water or a Nalgene or a tank with a cap on it, any, any kind of thing that holds water and promises that it will keep it. But Jeremiah is saying that we build those things with our own hands. And then we trust in them whenever they are broken and they leak and they don't have anything for us. They provide nothing for us. You see, the thing about broken cisterns is that they don't give us and deliver on our thirst. They just frustrate our thirst. They give the promise that if we go to it, we can drink deeply and we can have that deep thirst met. But when we lift the cap off and see nothing there, there's just remorse. There's sadness. That's what a broken cistern gives us. I was thinking earlier on the way up here, it's like this coffee cup. I went to Starbucks like I do on every Sunday morning, and I got a coffee cup. And it promises me certain things, right? It promises me that it's going to meet my need. I, I, I like caffeine before I preach. You might be able to tell that sometimes. I like it. it. For me, it's a little bit like a liquid cigarette, not that I smoke or anything, but it, it actually calms me, even though science tells me it doesn't calm me. It feels like it calms me, right? It has a lid on it, which promises that it's keeping everything hot. I had a little green plug in it right here to promise it's not going to get all over your console, right? It's got a little sticker over there that promises we will not get your order wrong. We will deliver exactly what it is. It's got the little cardboard wallet on it to say you're safe to pick it up. I pick it up. I smell it. It smells good. It gives me an assurance that I'm going to get my 330 milligrams of caffeine and everything will be well, right? But what if it was broken, right? What if it was broken? So if there was a hole in it, there it goes. Just a little bit of coffee. Don't panic. We'll clean it up later. We'll spread it out so it'll be easier to clean up. So now it's a broken cistern, right? Now what if I came next Sunday and I, and I lifted up the lid? I was so excited. And there's nothing in there. A broken cistern, it promises it's going to give me something, but it doesn't. Now what we do with our idols is we look at it and we say, well, gosh, that stinks. Maybe next time, put the lid on, put the same idol down. Next week, I don't go to Starbucks. I come right back to the same cup. I'm really excited about this 330 milligrams of caffeine. Oh, man, maybe next time. 
Same cup, same broken cistern. Over. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. Friends, this is what pornography does, right? Statistically, most of you in here have or are currently struggling with that. Is that not what it does, though? It's going to meet your needs this time, but it never really does, does it? That's why people that get hooked on pornography usually gets more and more and more aggressive, right? Because you keep thinking and it keeps promising, I will deliver, but it never does. Love of money, same thing. Stack your bills, stack them high. It'll meet all of your needs. Pretty soon you're building silos to hold all of your money, but it never really meets the need. It's a, it's a broken cistern, right? Overworking, body image. There's all kinds of ways that we say, this will give me what I need. It will fill me with water, with living water. But when we open up the lid, nothing. Maybe next time. Now, we're about to find out why this woman struggled specifically, but is this not a good time to just stop and consider what our broken cisterns are? Is it not a decent time to consider where that is true in all of us? What is it, this is my question, what advertises and promises a valuable reward to you, but whenever you take the lid off, maybe next time? A spouse? A relationship? Your kids? Your job? Food? It could be anything. Why? Because we make them with our own hands, according to Jeremiah. This is the important punchline at this point. It's an important that you hear me. This is not a sermon about evangelism. Okay? A lot of people will handle this passage with an evangelistic leaning, right? Here, you could be like Jesus. This is what Jesus did. He met her alone. He spoke to her on her terms in a place where she was comfortable. And they give you this cute little uh, list of, of ways that we could be better evangelists like Jesus. Friends, it's not about evangelism. We're not Jesus in this passage. We're the woman. I'm excited to not teach evangelism today. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you know how rare that is. I'm a little bit militant when it comes to mission in the city. But that's not what this is about. This is about living water extended to you and me. We're the ones that grab and bear hug our broken cisterns. We're the ones that get nervous when people start touching our idols which is what we're about to talk about now. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and have him come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. It almost feels like Jesus is being a jerk here, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel a little bit like he's just kind of being insensitive and just like, hey, I know you're trash. Here it is. How do you like that? He's not. He's being respectful. If a man is going to give a woman that he is not married to a gift, it is important culturally to have her husband there. That way there's no misunderstanding, right? Because it might sound a little bit weird. Hey, this guy I don't know gave me this valuable gift. If you're a husband in the room, you wouldn't like that very much. Jesus is being respectful. And listen, we don't know why she has had five marriages. We can speculate. It's possible there was sin on her part that led to divorce five times. 
It's possible that it was the husband. It, it, maybe both. Maybe she was promiscuous. Maybe all of it. We can only guess. But one thing we do know is there was shame. Boatloads of shame. She had been a poor steward of her thirst. She had been a poor steward of her thirst and had spent most of her life running to broken cisterns that hold no water. For her, it happened to be men. Or, I guess, even wider a relationship, right? That first marriage didn't work. Maybe this next one will supply my needs. Maybe, no, maybe next time. Maybe this third husband will make me feel a way that husbands number one and two did not make me feel. No, maybe next time. Husband number four does not deliver because he's a broken sister. Maybe next time. Husband number five. Goodness gracious, that's a lot, right? Maybe this one will help me get it right. Maybe next time. Now Jesus is there offering her the only water that will satisfy her, this living water, this availability to be satisfied in God, to be excited about a living well welling up in her. But let's read what she does in verse 19. This is helpful. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It's a big declaration. Now listen, I'm not going to take this time to talk about how worshipers should worship. Now, that's the predictable thing to do here, and it deserves that. It deserves that sermon or two, talking about what it means to worship in spirit and truth, okay? But I want to stick with the storyline. We'll come back to that, and we'll have to teach that in order to really handle John well as a, as a whole book. But I want you to watch what she does. Does it not look like she's dodging him a little bit? I mean, here it is. Her shame has come out. The light is there. He starts pushing on it, touching on it. And what does she do? She, she jigs when he jags. It's the same thing we would do. We have an allergic to reaction to, to God handling our idols and messing around with them. So she does this thing where she starts a controversy or goes to a controversy in order to avoid the weight of what he's talking about right there in that moment. We can do the same thing, and we know when we're doing it. We could be these theological nerd bean counters, you know, where we pick these tiny little things to argue with God about or argue with each other about when really there's something pretty weighty and pretty measurable that's contending with our hearts. We could do this. As a naive, young, 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 young pastor many years ago, I remember bumping into the very first person I'd ever come across that refused to give a dollar 
to the local church, to missions, to the hurting, to anybody. It was his money. I was blown away a little bit. So I speak to him on how the gospel handles our, our idols and what God thought about that and how it didn't even belong to him. You know, I'm telling him some basic things, things I've told you before. And he stops me and he goes, well, technically, actually, the New Testament, blah, blah, blah. He turns into this grade A seminary professor. He can't teach his family out of a paper bag. But when it comes to giving, man, he could go a seminar. He could teach for weeks. He's so knowledgeable. Why? Because he's bean counting. He's diverting into a controversy so that he doesn't have to be forced to deal with the idol in his life. Living together is another big one. Well, we live together. Well, you probably shouldn't do that. Well, yes, but listen, I mean, we sleep in the same room in a slain bed, but we have all our clothes on and we don't touch each other, so technically it's okay. Technically, actually, and then they start giving all of these passages and scriptures, and you're like, what world am I in right now? It's the same thing, and we all do it. And the thing is, we know when we're doing it too, don't we? We know when we're being counting. Technically, God. Actually, Lord, it's not an idol, it's a hobby. And I'm doing it for your glory, if you really look at it a certain way. Technically, actually, we all do this. We can duck and dodge and zig and zag and resist, just like this woman does, wrangling with small issues, not wanting to look at our shame, not wanting to discuss it, and definitely not letting him touch it for any reason. What I want you to do today is I want you to consider where you avoid your sin and where you avoid your shame being addressed. And when God does address it, maybe it's through a book or a passage or a pastor or, or anything, do you get nervous? Do you get antsy and start squirming? Do you get mad? Do you start bean counting? Technically, what are you doing as a response? Do you avoid eye contact with God when he pushes on your idols and he tells you to drop them where you stand because you don't need them anymore? Your days of getting ripped off don't have to go any further. Do you argue with him? Are you still saying, maybe next time? How many times have you said that to the broken cisterns you have in your life? Maybe next time. These same idols, always over-promising, always under-delivering. You know, as you worship today, and we're about to stand up here in just a second and worship the Lord, as you worship today, I want you to just focus on being at this well. Being at the well. You're sitting there, alone, with Jesus. You have your shame in your hands. He has eternal life in his. He's looking at you, you're looking at him, and he sees your shame. He sees it all. And listen, he won't be diverted. He's not hearing any of your controversies. He's not going to listen or indulge in your bean counting. His eyes are fixed on you. He's not blinking. He's here to do business. He wants to do business with you. He hates the idols that are ripping you off. He hates the shame that is pulling you inside out. And he wants you to drop it all right where you stand. Right where you stand. You know, one of the beautiful parts of the gospel 
One of the beautiful parts of the gospel is not that it stops right at an empty tomb. It continues on to another banqueting table in a different kingdom with a beautiful king and the end of sin. And in that place, there will be no more shame. No more shame. We can't even, can't even imagine a place like that. We're, we don't have the ability to conceive of a place where there's no shame. But it's waiting for us. It describes it in Revelation 7. Go ahead and stand with me as I read it over you. Revelation 7 describes this time in verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. It's the fulfillment of what Jesus is talking about. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is good news for many of you who have boatloads of shame right now. Good news. You need it to go away. You have done things. Things have been done to you. And you are the type of person that only goes to get water at noon. What Jesus wants you to know right now is that his grace, it detours into unclean places and finds unclean people. And his eyes are fixed on you. But he's asking you to drop your idols. That means for us to repent, to drop the broken cisterns around us. And some of us, that's going to cause a heavy flinching inside. Best worked out through worship. It's going to cause a flinching in us. We don't want to let go of our idols. We don't want to repent. But we need to for not believing that God is really that good. For not believing that he could really satisfy Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, you are so good, and I do believe that the phrase, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I know that you are most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in you, yet I still carry as many broken cisterns as I can get in my arms. As many idols as I can get in my life to promise that they will help me live, I will do it. I know that's how my heart is. Lord, I've done dark things. Dark things have been done against me. And I know I speak for every single person in this room. But you see it all. The boatloads of shame that we cannot peel off of us. Lord, we ask as a church that you would help us leave our shame at the well as we go back to tell the city of the king that we have found that we would put our broken idols down as we go back to the city and describe the king that we have found, or rather has found us. Lord, hallelujah, that your grace is a detouring grace. It doesn't belong with me. It doesn't belong with Knoxville. It doesn't belong with us, but you seek us out. And all of our denial can do is just produce and provoke the thunder of resurrection. You are so mighty and so good. And you will not be diverted. In this moment, Father, as we thank you and as we celebrate and worship you, we as a church lock eyes with you. And we know that you are not blinking. We know you are here to do work. Let us handle this moment with a holy, holy awe and a fear. Because, Father, I know that there are many unnamed Samaritan women and men here stricken with shame and crazy about their idols. Lord, break our heart for you 
Meet us and clean us. Thank you so much. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.